Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, president of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anaesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia here in Australia. Hotel quarantine. What a big discussion point it is at the moment. We've seen those big breaches here in Victoria, and we've had ongoing breaches over summer from New South Wales and today from Brisbane. And there's now discussion of locking down Brisbane and potentially closing borders. So I'm delighted that I'm sharing with you this episode that I've recorded with Sherilyn McGurgan. She's an emergency nurse from the Royal Melbourne Hospital who has been involved in not only being a recipient of hotel quarantine, but also providing hotel quarantine and repatriating people from Wuhan, from the epicentre, almost a year ago now. It's incredibly unfortunate how she ended up in hotel quarantine, but don't let me tell you the story. Let's hear it directly from Sherilyn. All right, hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I feel like we probably should have crossed paths by now because I feel like we've done lots of similar things. I think we have. Yeah, so you've been an EMST coordinator. Since 2012. You've been involved with Osmat as well for a while. I was deployed in 2009, not as an OSMAT, but as VMAT, a VMAT response, which ideally really should have been an OSMAT, to Samoa for the tsunami. We were there for 14 days. I worked in the operating theatre. My background is theatre trained. Long time ago, though. But it was nice to see that they had the same autoclave that I trained on. It was an amazing experience. Very eye-opening. Very emotional seeing the very small community operating on their own family members. By the time we got there, it had been like eight days after the tsunami, so they were exhausted, absolutely. They were working around the clock. There was lots of amputations. There was lots of deprivement of wounds. So that was um, quite traumatic for a lot of people over there. I was actually working in Fiji at the time of that tsunami, and we had a lot of students from Samoa and it was a very challenging time I think uh, knowing that they had family members you know involved in the tsunami. I remember hearing when we found out that New Zealand and Australia were arriving to provide assistance I think it just provided a lot of relief for the Samoan community that were in Fiji. So I was going to ask you actually what your background was because you're now working in the emergency department. Yes I've been at the Royal Melbourne Hospital emergency department for 25 years in numerous roles. At the moment, my role is a clinical nurse specialist and equipment lead and logistic lead for the pandemic. So keeping you very busy in this last year. We've just upgraded to going back to full face shields on the floor, which um, it was nice just to have masks. People flexed up easy this time without too many questions. They just did it. But they are very exhausted. Our staff are tired. They need annual leave. They need to have some time off. And unfortunately, our numbers of presentations are really high at the moment. My job is the PPE, to make sure everyone's got correct PPE, that mask fit testing is happening. We're making sure we go in hard early. So we wear the most that we can wear early and then back off if we need to, which I think is what we identified that we were slow in doing in the first round. I want to come back and ask you about COVID because I know you've had so many experiences with it now. Tell me about Wuhan. So when did you go over to Wuhan? Flew to Wuhan, so it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon when I got the email asking whether I would um, be available to be on a flight at 6pm that day. Wow, so zero time to pack. <laughs> I called my daughter and I said, could you get me my grab bag ready? 
she was quite used to me taking off every now and again. I thought I would probably be going to Christmas Island when we brought people back. And I didn't think we'd be getting off the plane for very long in Wuhan. So I said to her, even though I knew it was winter over there, I said, I'll probably only need cool clothes for a hot climate. It was minus four degrees when we arrived. Well, you get the email in the afternoon. You've got to be at the airport by 6 p.m. By 6 p.m. So I went home, had a quick shower, grabbed the stuff. Susan, my boss, drove me to the airport. I actually didn't know what flight I was getting on at that stage. She got text to me from the Department of Health with the flight number and the ticket. I got to Sydney and then it was wait. Had a conference meeting with the team. So I, I didn't know the team at the time. So there was 11 in the team. We had a conference meeting. There were two new leads a medical and a nursing lead, and um, they said, is there a C. McGurgan? You're going to teach us PPE? <laughs> I teach a little bit of it down here. In our department, we have a team that looks after evolving emergency infectious diseases, like Ebola and stuff, and we run training sessions every month because you just got to keep on top of it. It's hard to do it if you're not trained. So you've been training people in how to use airborne PPE yes. well before this pandemic started? Yes, so Jupiter hoods for in case we got an Ebola outbreak. You never know. And not just that, for any sort of SARS or any sort of infectious disease. I think you just you just need to be prepared. And it's too hard to train 400 staff. It's easier to train a team that volunteer that want to be part of it because they're committed to it then. And it was slow. It takes an hour to, to watch someone don a Jupiter hood and doff a Jupiter hood. So it sounds like a, the Jupiter hood is the overhood for the loose-fitting, powered air purifying yes, respirator. correct. Have you used that PPE setup that you've just described at all during this pandemic with SARS-CoV-2? No. no. We've stuck with normal PPE and restroom PPE. I started thinking that my backup plan would be to make sure that we had enough for staff, but couldn't get it from the US. Could not get it. So I have enough for a small team, but not enough for changeover shifts. If you can't cover everybody, there's no point. If you can't give everyone the same degree of safety, there's no point. And it would be so hard to teach everybody. We would probably limit what it was used for, maybe just intubation for aerosol-generated procedures. But in the end, we just stuck to our normal PPE because it was easier to teach people that. And if we get masks fitted correctly and have a system where we have a warden or a PPE patroller monitoring people's doffing, we kept it safe like that. If you could have got those devices in the Jupiter Hood, the Pappas in, when would you have wanted to use them? I mean, you talked about with those particular patients, but would it have been throughout the pandemic, say since March, in the second wave? Probably in the second wave when our numbers were quite great, where we were intubating you know, three or four patients a day. We probably would have been ideal to introduce that into the resus area. We have eight resus cubicles, two trauma bays, It'll be hard to train everybody, but I think we would have to have had a patroller 24 hours a day. We would have had to have invested in a patroller, making sure that people are in their gear correctly, that their belts are correct, their airflow is correct, nothing's alarming, and that they doffed correctly. It is then looking like the videos that we've seen coming out of Wuhan when they were yes. going into that sort of PPE. Now, speaking of Wuhan, so you're in Sydney. You've been told that you're going to be in charge of PPE training. But then what happened from there? Then we had to go to the Chinese embassy to get um, visas. So that was at midnight. They opened the embassy up at midnight and we got our visas. The following day, we flew. We had a meeting in the morning um, with DFAT and got all the requirements that we need to do. And we had a team of DFAT officers coming with us. 
we didn't actually know much about the assignment that we had. We knew we were bringing people back. We didn't know the cohort of stuff, uh, people that we were returning at the time until we were on the flight. It was a, one of the longest flights of my life, a total of 56 hours. Whoa. Not all in the air. We landed in Hong Kong for the Qantas flight team to leave and for a new um, staff to come on. New staff didn't come on. We were then remained on the tarmac for a period of time. I think it was overnight into the next day. Wow. (laughs) On the aeroplane with the doors open and the ramp down and guards in the airport. Oh, because, of course, you couldn't clear immigration. No. So we stayed on the plane. In that time, we set up, we divided the plane into sections for oncoming passengers because we would be screening them. And we also realised that it's flu season over there. So middle of winter, flu season, it'll just be about everybody would have a cough, a cold of some sort. They were being screened for their temperature, and that was it, in Wuhan before we collected them. We did screen for lots of other things, but it was mainly the fever, flu-like symptoms. We didn't swab anyone on the plane. Everyone was masked. We were all in full um, respiratory PPE, the whole flight coming back. Long, grueling flight, so I hope there was some company. The Qantas staff were so brilliant. They had all volunteered for the flight as well, who were prepared to, to support us on it. And they were teaching them PPE. There was also a Qantas ambulance officer. She was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. She um, looked after the Qantas staff, but she also looked after a lot of the, the supplies and things that we needed. So you arrive in Wuhan, you, you don your own PPE and you meet the passengers who've only had their temperature screen. And then it sounds like you sort of triage them and put them into cohorts. You sort of triage them. So I was at the door as they were being um, loaded on. So they were, came in dribs and drabs. It was defect were down on the ground, clearing them, looking at passports, looking at um, items that they were bringing onto the plane. And then they would slowly come on. We got an inventory of the passengers arriving and any medical conditions. So I think we had 150-odd children under the age of 15, and the rest were adults. The youngest was a six-month-old baby. The eldest was a 94-year-old retired GP who was in a wheelchair. Absolute gentleman. He had his daughter with him, and he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. The thing I recall the most from this trip was flying into Wuhan, Wuhan's an enormously big city. Mm-hmm. There was not one vehicle on the road. There was not one person on the street except for the army. It was about midnight or 11 o'clock when we flew in. So it was dark and all the city lights were on but not bright. It was like a city that had gone to sleep. It was just quiet and barren. And the same with the airport. We were, other than our evacuees, we were the only people in the airport. They had been in order to stay at home, stay in your door. One person was allowed out once a fortnight to get groceries. I take my hat off to the Chinese people for following a direction to the T. I think people followed the instructions because they wanted it to, to end. They wanted to be able to get back to normal life. So they just obeyed. Oh, I've been to Wuhan a few years, quite a few years ago. 11, 13 million people. It's a huge, bustling city. It's incredible. And it's also the, the hub of production for a lot of the PPEs. Yes, right. So we separated people coming on into um, if you had a temperature, and there was mild temperatures. There was some am- amazing masks created, though. There was some people had, there was a, a chap who had a box with two cardboard holes, holes cut into the cardboard and filters. He had put his own filters into the holes. I said, can I just give you a surgical mask to put on? 
<laughs> so they all came back in surgical masks, the passengers. We changed all their masks to surgical masks. We washed their hands when they came on board. They all had a kit on their chair. So we've made up a kit in a yellow infectious bag. And in that kit was written instructions on declaration, how to put a mask on. And then a mask, there was hand hygiene, there was snacks, the Qantas staff handed out food. We gave them a meal before we put them to settled them down for the night and we screened every single one of them. So every one of them had a sheet filled in with their name, date of birth, next of kin, where they had travelled from, a set of vital signs, temperature. We did it twice on the flight back from Wuhan to Howard Springs, which is about an eight and a half hour flight. It was a tag team. There was five nurses screening. How many passengers are we talking about? 266. Whoa. It was a busy night. And then, then we did the cleaning as well. So we washed the toilets in between. There were certain toilets we let them use. Anyone identified as not well or having a temperature or vomiting, there was two or three children who had spiked temperatures. A couple of the kids had gastro. So we isolated them and their um, parents into the middle section. So the back section of the plane were well-returning travellers. Middle section we had as um, anyone with any respiratory type symptoms was in the middle section and any gastro was in the front section right next to a single toilet. So we just separated people and we changed our PPE in between each section. Qantas staff wore full PPE. They were watched donning and doffing. We had a donning and doffing station and everyone who put their gear on and off got watched. Incredible having a donning and doffing station on a plane. Very tight area. Space was probably the one thing we didn't have. The air conditioning on the plane was really good, though. So the airflow was really good, which we probably didn't understand much about at the time, how important airflow is. And we had a pregnant traveller on the plane who was seven and a half months pregnant. There was a few of medical conditions, but we had a list of them and we were monitoring them. There was a couple of diabetics who were insulin dependent. They all had all their own gear with them and they all were only allowed to bring a certain amount of luggage. It was mid-air before we were informed that we were not going to Christmas Island, we were going to Howard Springs. Great place. I can't think of a, a better place to go to, to quarantine people. The facility was almost like it was custom built for it. It is, it is ideal for return travellers. Perhaps you could describe what that Howard Springs facility is like for people who've never been there. Howard Springs is a large compound that held 3,000 it was built for the miners, and I can't remember when it was built, but not that long ago because all the facilities are very workable and quite new. It's a large facility with a perimeter that has sections. It's got dongles, which are small rooms. In New Zealand, we call them batches. They're a single room that can hold a couple if need be, but they did separate them all. Single rooms with a bed, a little kitchenette, which is, is like open planned and a small bathroom, which has a shower and a toilet and a hand basin um, and has a little balcony and steps down into a general public pathway. Each room has a TV, a telephone, Wi-Fi, a little fridge, little microwave and a little safe. It's a home away from home. If you're on a camping holiday and you want the sunshine, there is enough space up there for 3,000 people to have their own room. And then centrally, there is a cafe, there is a restaurant. They're not active at the time. They're not active now even, but those facilities are available. There is a large kitchenette space, a large dining area space. There's entertainment facilities with a Olympic-sized swimming pool, two basketball courts, two tennis courts, a cinema. We took the kids to the pitches. And there's probably other small facilities. There's an IT room. There's three small classrooms. 
every section has fenced off and can be isolated from the next section, but has a pathway to a main hub, if you call it the hub. There's reception area, secure gates. It's extremely secure, all ground level, no double stories, all built for Darwin weather. It's an ideal place that has everything you need if you want to be quarantining. It sounds great. And did you live in Howard Springs for those two weeks of quarantine as well? Yes, so we lived in Compound M, which is where we put our isolated. So anyone we screened, so we screened. So you worked in pairs and one remained clean and one was dirty. So you're in PPE, you're outside, it is 35 degrees, it is hot, you watched out for each other, you monitored each other's temperature because heat stress is quite common up there, especially if you're already in a long sleeve shirt and long pants and boots and you've got full PPE, respiratory PPE over top. One carried the paperwork and one did the screening and checking up to make sure your, your group was okay. All our residents were in in zone. There was a young mum and her six-month-old baby. So you take their temperature, you'd ask them all the respiratory questions, you ask them how they felt, and then you would check over their socioeconomic needs. Do you need to get a SIM card so she could contact her family to let them know that she was safe and where she was? She needed nappies for the baby and formula for the baby, and she was gluten intolerant. So to make sure those things were there and that she needed to fill her script, so getting her script to the local pharmacy to get filled, so then one of the OSMAT logic would go and collect it and pick it up for her. So you did their whole holistic approach to looking after somebody who couldn't leave the compound to go and get stuff. So you needed to make sure that, even though we supplied meals, you needed to make sure all those other little things were, that's what made the stay important for them and it made the stay easier for everybody. But the people we repatriated were so forever grateful. The kids were amazing. They drew love hearts on their windows to thank everybody on the way around. We had a, a ceremony at the end when they were all released after 14 days and we put them on buses. It was actually sad to see them all go. We had no problems. Like I say, we just had people who were so grateful to be brought home during such tough times at the time and not many people getting taken out of um, Wuhan at the time. I think this was the second evacuation or third, actually. I think New Zealand might have evacuated 50 people from Wuhan and the first lot went to Christmas Island. I think that was the last shipment out. So people have had to find other ways of leaving the country to get back home. So I think they were so forever grateful. There was a spokesman in the team from the Wuhan group who set up a WhatsApp. So he would get the information from us and then he would distribute it to everyone in the compound. It was really good. So they all got the same information. The most challenging thing was setting up the entertainment and the roster on how we would take people and who we would take and what days would go through, like the swimming. So we took people swimming in the swimming pool. So there was a lifeguard on duty. The kids didn't have to get into PPE for the swimming pool, but um, you're still in full PPE watching them swim. So setting up a process on, on what would happen if, if one of them required rescuing from the pool, the lifeguard would bring them out, but you would need to resuscitate them. <laughs> we had no near misses. Everything was very safe, but just having a dining station going in and a doffing station coming out every entertainment session had that cleaning the pool afterwards and having enough time in between testing the water to make sure everything was safe. If there was anyone identified with any respiratory symptoms, not while swimming, but in general, you isolated them. So we were the screening team. You then had a swabbing team and that team would then come over with a cart, evacuate the person over to M block, which was our isolation block, and then they would be monitored for 24 hours. Children, including the babies and that, they were still swabbed. 
And then once their swab was cleared and their symptoms resolved, they were then to return to the area. It was just the slightest symptom, got you swabbed and taken out. We had identified very early on, there was quite a lot of influenza A going around. So there was a number of people that had flu A and the common cold, but no one else caught it. Just through isolation, PPE, the kids were so good, they'd put their hands out to have their hands washed every morning. They'd put their masks on. Kids were wearing masks. Everyone was wearing masks up there all the time. You'd knock on the door, you'd go screening, and they'd come out of their room and you would screen and check over to make sure everything was okay. We had a a small medical clinic set up in the compound. You'd have a um, a doctor and a nurse doing on-call or a doctor and a um, paramedic doing on-call. And you wouldn't get called out very often, but it would be for someone jumped off a bed and hit their head. Minor stuff. It sounds like there's so many things that went well there. For the Ausmat staff, we were in full airborne PPE. Yes. You had delegated roles, so you didn't cross over. You're either screening or swabbing or whatever. Correct. You had everyone who's been repatriated in a surgical mask. Yes. There's lots of airflow because you're in the tropics. Yes. And you can have all the doors and windows open. And we now know that's a really important thing. We didn't know that, understand that so much back in March. Very. And you had everybody in small pods. Correct. So that there was no mixing from one pod to another. Correct. Even when people were moved into isolation, you still kept people from the same pod together. You still screened them, you swabbed them, then you, you took them food separately and there was a separate entrance into there for donning and doffing station. I think that's been something that people have been a little bit slow to catch on to is the need to keep the movement of people really well defined. Yes. The number of OSMAT staff who, who were infected from COVID, probably zero as a result of that. Zero. And then you came back to Victoria. Setting up screening clinics in Victoria, there was an emergency meeting called on the Saturday, which would have been the 4th or 5th of July. Emergency meeting called in the morning to say we need to set up a screening clinic and start screening everyone at Flemington Towers. There had been an outbreak at the towers of about 40 people who were positive. And in those towers, there are a lot of our patients that come to rural Melbourne. So there's a lot of renal disease. There's quite a few elderly people. Um, there's people that have mental health issues. So there's lots of compromised cohorts of patients and people living in those towers with lots of family. Their airflow is not great. Massive blocks of a lot of people and lots of people living in very small rooms. Emma Gardner and I were sent in to have a look at what would be the ideal place. We've got in contact with a a lady there that is a manager of the community centre there. So there's a community centre that runs community groups and we had a quick look at the place and thought this would be ideal. We've got an entrance door, we've got an exit door. We can set a dining station up here. There's enough bathrooms. So we started to fit it out and set it up. So I ordered tables to be bought and I found a few things that I could use but desperately needed cleaning. So ideally the place hadn't been used for some days. It should have been safe. But unfortunately, it was probably not the correct information. It probably had been used overnight. And so the, the viral load on the surfaces was probably quite great. And I had on a surgical mask and my glasses only. And then what happened? And three days later, I was at work typing on the computer and got this headache. And I thought, I've never had a headache. I don't get headache. And shut my computer down, went upstairs, and we were only wearing surgical masks at work, went upstairs and got swabbed. Went to Susan, my boss, and said, I've just been swabbed, got a headache, got a shock of a headache, going to go home. Susan and I had been carpooling prior to this with no masks and... (laughs) Go home. I said to my daughter, I live at home with my daughter. We only have one bathroom and two separate toilets, but one bathroom. 
And I said to her, I've just been swabbed. Stay in your room, order Uber Eats. Don't touch the rest of the house. And so I started cleaning, <laughs> cleaning and eventually got the chills, had a hot bath, went to bed. Midnight I was awake and I knew then before I'd even been told, I said, I'm said to I woke Phoebe up and I said, I reckon I've got COVID. So a spiked attempt, but only a mild temp, nothing major. The headache was very there and then got chest pain and terrible diarrhea. Got the call about seven o'clock the following morning to say I was positive. I said to the, um, the vids doctor who rang me, I said, you ring to tell me I'm positive. I think I already know. I said, these are my symptoms at the moment. He said, can you isolate at home? I said, we have one bathroom and my daughter works at the hospital. So he said, with the chest pain, you need to come anyway. We need to have a look at you. So I came in and went with a direct admission to Nine East at that stage. We didn't have many admissions at that stage. So went into Nine East, our infectious disease ward, and got worked up. Had an abnormal ECG initially, but then it resolved and the T waves reverted and it was normal. The chest pain went away, had some blood done. And my blood, my blood markers were all quite normal. So there was nothing too much going on and then got put into hotel quarantine. So I had first-hand experience somewhere on the eighth floor I was. St John's Ambulance took me there. They were fantastic. Got checked in by nursing staff that I met the first day. They were absolutely brilliant. They were in full PPE. I did say to them, I have no respiratory symptoms. I have a headache and a bit of nausea at that stage. Did some squats, 10 squats with a sat probe on to see whether I was short of breath and monitored my temperature and said, if you turn your TV on, it will give you all the information you need. Turn my TV on, which would not turn on. They had already left. The information on the TV had the number to contact if you needed a nurse. I didn't need a nurse, but I did need to speak to reception to tell them that the TV wasn't working, so I didn't have any information that I needed. The room was fine. The room was small, but it was fine. I couldn't get outside, couldn't open a window, and the fridge didn't work, and there was no water. Such a difference to your experience in Howard Springs. Much different, and I can see now why people rebelled against the hotel quarantine. If all hotels were like this, it must have been closed for three or four months because the linen on the bed was clean, but um, the bathroom itself was filthy. So I had taken a water bottle in myself, but I couldn't get it under the tap. It didn't fit in the basin, neither did the little kettle they left me because the basin was so tiny. So I couldn't actually, other than putting my head under the tap, I couldn't get water. When I finally picked up and just rang zero, it did actually go to reception. And I did explain to them that I needed a bottle of water if possible. Or could I actually have a microwave? There was a microwave in the room, but they'd removed it before I came in because I was infectious and so was the girl next door. There was a number of people in that were positive COVID. A meal arrived. I am vegetarian. I did ask for no dairy. More than happy to have anything. And a box of wheat bix arrived with no milk, no bowl, no cup. Eventually it all came. Then the night meal arrived. It was a halal chicken, but that's Okay. I had no appetite anyway, so it really didn't matter. One of the consultants at work, Nikki Walsham, contacted me and said, is there anything I can bring you? Is there anything you need? I said, I would love some salads. And then um, then I was put into the home monitoring program, so where you get sent a package and you have the SAT monitor and you each day you get sent a text. The program was really good. The only shortfall with that program was that I never had any respiratory symptoms. I think it was fantastic for anyone who was starting to deteriorate and they could quickly identify the need for them to bring them into hospital. So I think a great program, but it didn't identify anyone who had pain or neurological symptoms. And as we know now, sometimes the neurological symptoms can be quite severe and they can lead to strokes. 
by day three, I had stopped answering my phone and messages because my headache was so bad. So they screened you once a day. You could ring, but I still did not have a TV that was working with any information. And I did let the staff know and did get two numbers, but the numbers you actually meant to ring different numbers before those numbers. So it was actually quite confusing. And by that stage, I couldn't didn't want to move off the bed or look at a phone. And the nausea was now active vomiting. I did ask for Maxlon, but it took eight hours for the Maxlon to come. So by the time it came, I couldn't keep it down. And the headache was so bad that I have um, probably never, I mean, I've had children without an anaesthetic, without an epidural, and the headache was beyond anything I've, it was like I thought I was actually, I was combative. I wanted to punch a wall. I can now understand how patients become combative with neurological symptoms. I felt nothing was getting rid of this pain in my head. Nothing else mattered except for this pain that was like a crushing, like somebody was actually squeezing so tight. But I actually did think I was probably going to have a stroke. I hate to think what my blood pressure was. And then the monitoring program rang, um, said to me, you need an ambulance, you need to be out of there. I didn't need to be out of there. I spent eight days back at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. I had something similar to COVID meningitis and I still have ongoing symptoms now. I still have neurological symptoms where I feel like I'm going to fall backwards. I'm not, but I feel sometimes grab something, feeling like I'm falling. I am seeing a neurologist. I've got an MRI coming up. I have joint issues. I recently had an ulnar nerve release from the elbow. So I lost sensation in my hand, my left hand, whilst in hospital and had a little club finger happening. They booked me to see a plastic surgeon. He said, you need an ulnar nerve release. Two days before the surgery, I lost sensation in my thumb and forefinger altogether. So he said, you need a medial nerve release as well. So they did both at the same time. He said the medial nerve was quite inflamed. The ulnar nerve, I'd had an ultrasound and nerve conduction studies done, which showed the ulnar nerve was three times the size it should have been. There was lots of nerve things, and I still have nerve pain now, but I have full sensation, which the surgery resolved the altered sensation. I just don't have the strength yet. I was weightlifting before this. I'd like to be able to get back to it at some stage. I'd like to actually get back to running at some stage, but um, small steps. So I still have foggy brain where I'll be coming to work and for a split second I'm thinking, where am I actually going? It passes and then I think, oh, that's right, I'm going to work. But um, <laughs> it just comes for no reason. And then I get lost for words sometimes. I'm hoping that this is not going to be long to long term, that it will be short long term and that hopefully by six months I'll be starting to come right. We'll, we'll see. You got infected back in early July. Yes. Not even from patient contact. No, from I think probably the viral load on a surface. And not having airborne protection as well. Correct. You don't get respiratory symptoms. Your symptoms are mainly neurological and gastrointestinal. And now yes. we're, what are we, almost six months later and you still have symptoms. But geez, what an atypical presentation and yes. course so far. But hopefully what will be good will be an atypically good recovery. I hope so. And um, despite all that, I furloughed 40-odd people. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So what happened there? Including my daughter. So everyone was furloughed for 14 days and it was right before we flipped into Red and Ned. So respiratory ED and normal ED. It was a massive turn. We had done lots of prep work before really leading up to it. So it was just a matter of changing. But enormous volume of work to change. The last that backfilled me, Naomi, she did such an amazing job, enormous job to do. Not one person pulled it off me. Wow. Hand hygiene, so important. I cleaned my car each day after when we were driving because normally I catch a train, but because of COVID, we were advised, stay off public transport, drive if you can, parking's free. So I drove, but even carpooling, because I had no respiratory symptoms, 
Susan didn't catch from me. And every day I cleaned the car. I'd just wipe the car over, even though I'd get out of my scrubs at work and change my clothes before I got home. When I got home, I'd wipe the car over because the kids would hop in the car. So I'd be wiping every surface all the time. I just think that might have just helped. And the fact that I had no cough. That diligent cleaning. And I know a lot of people who have dedicated work clothes. And I know some people might think that's a bit overkill. No, I don't think so. For me, it makes it easier now. I don't have to think about what I've got to wear to work. I just wear the scrubs. Yes. I wanted to ask one more question because you said you had chest pain and you did have abnormalities in your ECG. So please tell me that your heart is okay. My heart's good. Everything is normal. Everything resolved. Troponin was normal. ECG is back to normal. The murmur that I had has resolved. Cardiac-wise, strong as an ox. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Because you do have a good heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. Is there anything that you wanted to add? I think COVID's here. It's here for the long haul. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And I think this is, they say there's a every hundred year pandemic. I don't know. I I just think these viruses come around a little bit more often than what we realise, whether it has this sort of impact or not. So I think we have to learn to live with this and live with it in a way that everyone remains safe but vigilant at the same time and still can enjoy their normal part of life. So I think this has been an eye-opener to everybody in Australia and around the world, how important it is to look out for each other, to wash your hands, so simple. And um, even though we can't kiss and hug, we can within your family, find other ways to show that you care. I think it's just so important to keep caring about everyone. Oh, wonderful, wonderful words. I totally agree. You have such an incredible story, Sherilyn. (laughs) It's been amazing talking with you. It's been really wonderful, I think, enlightening hearing about Ausmat and what's involved. And just, I think, what really stands out for me is the difference between the Howard Springs quarantine and then the hotel quarantine. Well, thanks, Sherilyn, and I really do hope you get better soon. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Susie. My thanks again to Cheryl and McGurgan, and I hope you enjoy listening to my chat with her. What an incredibly hardworking and inspiring woman who just didn't deserve to get COVID. No one deserves to get COVID. But it's here to stay, especially the B117 variant that's the highly infectious one from the UK. I do think we have this opportunity in Australia to really strengthen the biosecurity at our borders. There are countries who are doing it much more rigorously than we are here in Australia. And who knows, perhaps if we strengthen PPE requirements for our quarantine staff, we might be able to get strengthened PPE requirements for healthcare workers as well. Remember, it's a respiratory pathogen and respiratory pathogens need respiratory protection. And a surgical mask does not provide adequate respiratory protection in healthcare settings. I hope there's some good news on the horizon with that. But until then, I hope you stay safe out there. And don't forget, if you want to hear more conversations like this one, to subscribe to the podcast, Australian Anesthesia is what it's called, and feel free to share it with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, then do feel free to get in contact with me. The best email is asa at asa.org.au. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>